What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell just wrapping up his testimony before the Senate Banking Committee. His words calming some nervous markets. Hello, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan, and this is The Exchange. The major stock averages, they may be lower right now, but as Scott and Gang said, they are far off their session lows. At one point, the tech-heavy Nasdaq was off nearly 4%, an incredible slide for that index but has recovered much of that. The Nasdaq still on pace for its biggest two-day loss in nearly half a year. Now, much of the bounce back coming from the Fed chair, who reassured the market that the Fed has its collective back. Let us get straight now to Steve Leisman with what Jay Powell said that is cutting some of the losses. Steve. Hey, Brian. Yeah, Fed chair Jay Powell directly addressing the two main market concerns of inflation and higher yields and making clear he's in no hurry to address them by tightening policy and that the Fed's wide open monetary policy is going to remain in place while the economy recovers from the pandemic. The main thing that we can do is continue to support um, the economy, give it the support that it needs. We're still 10 million uh, jobs below the level of payroll jobs before the crisis. There's still a long way to go to full recovery, and we intend to keep our, our, our policy supportive of, uh, uh, of that recovery. Powell said the pandemic had left an imprint on inflation that would last while the Fed expects a rise in inflation. He thinks the increase is going to be temporary. In any event, he repeated the Fed's explicit policy is to aim for inflation above 2%. On the related issue of higher bond yields, Powell also said it was not an issue that concerned him much. We look at the whole range of financial conditions, and it's very important to to ask why are rates moving up? And so if you look at why they're moving up, it's it's to do with expectations of a return to more normal levels, more mandate consistent levels of inflation, higher growth and opening economy. In a way, it's a statement of confidence on the part of markets that we will have a robust and ultimately complete recovery. So uh, th- those are the reasons that are that are behind it. Powell declined to be drawn into the debate about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, saying it was an issue for Congress. And he also removed himself from the debate about the need for new relief, perhaps more than he had in the past in prior bills. Finally, Powell reiterating the Fed continues to study the issue of a central bank digital currency. So, Brian, he's cool with all that higher yield and uh, possible inflation stuff. Okay, let's be cool with the language, though, Steve, because you know better than anybody, words matter. One change here, one change there. In January, he said the job market had moderated, I think. This time, he says it slowed. Again, a small difference, but these are the kind of words that people are picking up on. Should we read into that, or did he just go to a thesaurus and find a different word. Um, I think in this case, it was the thesaurus or answer B in this in this context. Brian, I I think that uh, 
Powell and the Fed, and indeed many economists are disappointed what's happened the last three months, where uh, job growth is average is 29,000. And we had those big spurts. We were adding millions of jobs a month, and that's gone away. And, and that slowdown in job growth is something that concerns the Fed. And it was interesting, Brian, to listen to Powell sort of parry the questions, mostly from Republican senators, about why aren't you tightening? Why aren't you uh, easing back on policy? Almost every time, Brian, the answer was, because we're 10 million jobs below where we were in February. Oh, Steve, thank you very much. I guess the bottom line here is that Powell says there's a, there's a long way to go for a full recovery. The Fed not altering its accommodative monetary policy, but that they've got the markets back. So is this the right move with consumer confidence coming in better than expected for February and actually large parts of the American economy, real estate, manufacturing, shipping, actually doing quite well. Joining us now is Bill Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute, and Dana Peterson, chief economist at the conference board. Bill and Dana, welcome to you both. Uh, Dana, I'll start with you. Your take on Jay Powell. Do you believe the Federal Reserve uh, has the... This is not a traditional slowdown. This is not caused by this or that. It's caused by people not wanting to go to work or unable to go to work because they don't want to get sick. Does the Federal Reserve have the power that it usually would in a slowdown of traditional kind? Well, I mean, there's still tools that the Fed has, um, certainly uh, using words and such as even if it means breaking out a th thesaurus there. But I think, you know, the, the, the key issue here is that the Fed has said that full employment is a broad and inclusive mandate. So that means the Fed's going to be looking at multiple indicators here, not just the overall unemployment rate, but unemployment rates, um, and labor force participation for different groups, women, uh, persons who are young, uh, the people with low skills, different racial groups. And so I think that given the yeah. fact that, yes, we yeah. are, you know, 10, 9 to 10 million jobs under where we were prior to the pandemic, the Fed is still very concerned about the bottom line for households. And I hear you on that, Bill. But here's the thing. I, I, you know, and I've traveled extensively during the pandemic you know, mostly by car, sitting alone in rooms or whatever it might be. And, and I've noticed that there's, there's multiple economies. California, New York, Northeast, Chicago are very different than the Half of America's school kids are actually in school in person, like 42%, I think, which you'd never notice if you just read the headlines. I bring that up for a reason. The Milken Conference, usually the first week in May, in person. A couple thousand people come to L.A., spend a bunch of money at hotels and dinners. That's not happening. Is the Federal Reserve able to fix that? Those are the nine million jobs. That's what the Democrats would like the Fed to do. And it's sort of the mission creep that's been given to the Fed, because what they really need to do is fiscal policy. And fiscal policy is what can address the disparities in the economy. Brian, as you've noticed, the service sector has been crushed by the by the pandemic. And you know that there are six people working in the service sector for every person producing goods. So that means that in order for the service sector to come back, we're going to have to restore a lot of jobs. And and that's what the, the chair Powell is worried about, that to to sustain large-scale job increases without turning on inflation. And I think one of the things that the market's gotten wrong is that the inflation fears associated with the rate increases are really misplaced because rates are still at only 10 years at what, 1.3, 1.4? And it, it was at 1.9 at the yeah. beginning of uh, 2020. So we're nowhere near where rates should be in a normal recovery. So one thing, the other is the tech stocks getting killed. I think one thing you should keep in mind is that when you have a strong recovery, the, the numerator, 
earnings per share will also explode. So that just because the denominator goes up doesn't mean that the valuation should go down, especially for companies that are- I guess, I guess, Bill, let me, let me follow up with that here. And I, I'm not trying to wade into some vaccine debate or, or COVID debate, but I was in Florida recently in South Carolina. I actually had trouble getting a hotel room. It was sold out. The rental cars, I had trouble getting a rental car sold out. I know California, where the Milken Institute is based, is completely shut down. I'm not going to California. There's no reason to. There's nothing open and nothing to do. I'm not advocating for an open. What I'm saying is, does the Federal Reserve have the power to fix, quote, the job market, when in reality, the job market in many areas is simply closed because people don't want to go deal with a deadly pandemic? Yeah, I don't know. We don't have Bill sound. We'll try to get him back. Dana, did you hear my if you heard my question? Can you respond to that? Sure. Um, The thing is that what's really important is that businesses feel and people feel comfortable going back to work. Right. And certainly that's a function of government policies in terms of restrictiveness and also people's comfort with taking a vaccine. And so the Fed, you know, can can work to provide accommodation during this transition period. And certainly, you know, fiscal policies so far have been very supportive of the economy. But there's certain things that the Fed just can't possibly do. The Fed can't go and tell governments, hey, we need to open or kids need to go back to school. Um, What the Fed can do is make sure that financial conditions remain easy and that um, lending remains easy and that we can continue to support the areas of the economy that are still working. Yeah, Yeah, perfectly said. I mean, I think you nailed it, Dana. I mean, I think I think that that schools, again, not advocating here, but schools are the key to jobs. I mean, millions of people cannot go to work because they don't and can't leave their child home alone at you know nine years old to virtually learn very quickly. Is there a downside to this policy at, at all, Dana? Because if there wasn't a downside to ultra low rates, we would just always have them close the book and walk away forever. 32 people bidding on a house in Florida, sight unseen. Is there a risk? Sure, there's certainly risk to keeping rates low for a long time. Um, And one of them is certainly asset price inflation, where we have seen home prices rise quite quickly. The stock market is continuing to rise uh, very aggressively, certainly on expectations of further stimulus, of better growth, uh, more people getting vaccines. And so you do see this division between the haves and the have-nots, those who own homes and those who don't, those who own financial assets and those who don't. So there are definitely these risks. And then there's always a risk around taking on too much debt, you know, certainly uh, with respect to the non-financial corporate sector. Um, So, but the Fed must weigh those risks against making sure that they're maintaining accommodation and making sure that financial markets remain uh, fully liquefied. Dana Peterson, we appreciate your view. Bill, Bill Lee, if you're out there, we say thank you. If you can hear me, we thank you, and we'll get you back on soon. Both of you, have a terrific day. Thank you. All right, we got a market flash now because Snap shares are popping. Let's get to Julia Borston for that. Julia. Snap shares were in the red today, but the company is currently holding its investor day, and Snap shares are now trading higher. And this is on one specific comment. The company is saying that Thanks to the work on the self-serve ad platform, they are in a position to drive multiple years of 50% plus revenue growth. They're talking about the monetization platforms, all the products, talking about the value in augmented reality ads as well as video ads. But now you see Snapchat is up 3.5% on that comment that meaningful 50% plus revenue growth is in the works for years to come. Guys, back over to you. 
All right, Julia Borston with Snap. It is up. Julia, thank you. All right, we are just getting started here on the exchange on deck. Jay Powell may say that inflation is not a threat, but your next guess may beg to differ, at least in how they invest around it. Plus, the retailer losing ground despite a pretty big earnings beat. A look at what's driving the losses and why it might get worse as economies reopen. It is your mystery chart. Who is thou? We're going to let you know. Plus, more on the story of the last week, the largest forced power outage in American history. What really caused it, and how do we prevent it from happening again? We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. All right, welcome back here. Let's get a check down on the markets. I mean, look at the Dow. The Dow is down, but it's only down four-tenths of one percent. It was down almost 400 at one point. The Nasdaq, though, has been the story. Now, listen, I'm not going to make light of a 2% drop on the Nasdaq. That is a big drop, especially for that index. But at one point, it was down nearly 4% just today. They've come back on some of those Fed comments that we have talked about here. Remember, technology, the so-called growth sectors, are a much bigger weighting than so-called value. They're about 77% of the overall market. So if people rotate out of growth into value, names like, by the way, oil, energy, things like that, you call them value if you want, they're, they're in that group, that it's going to have an outsized effect on how the overall market moves. What's clear is the GOAT, as I'll call, get out and travel, or the reopen stocks are doing pretty well. Marriott's doing great today, the worst performers in the NASDAQ. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Stack 100, vaccine maker Moderna, Peloton's up there on the list, Zoom, PayPal, sort of the stay-at-home, work-from-home. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Pandemic-type stocks, they're the ones that are being sold. For more now on this, let's bring in Michael Cugino. He is president of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds and A.J. Oden, head of investment risk for BNY 
Mellon Investor Solutions. Both thanks to you guys. Michael, start with you. Are you one of these uh, investors who've been dumping the, the stay-at-home, work-from-home stocks and buying into get-out-and-travel or value names? Good to see you, Brian. Um, no, we've had exposure to a little bit of both. And so, no, we haven't been making any major portfolio changes. I do agree with the trade, though, in the long term, the post-COVID, the recovery, the reflation. Um, and going forward, you know, that's where the, the, the probably longer term opportunity is. But you definitely don't want to give up on the higher growth, high tech names because there's revenue growth, there's cash flow growth earnings growth there. And those stocks have a place in a growing economy as well. So it's, it's not an either or question to me. You know, AJ, we, we often forget there will be a world post pandemic, hopefully sooner than later. And what I know about that world is this demographics are often destiny. There are 85 million millennials, the first of which is hitting 40 years old. They're looking to move out of their apartment into a home. They're probably doing it faster now because of the pandemic interest rates are low. I bring that up because ultimately, could real estate be one of the best trades of the next five to 10 years? Well, it could. I mean, I guess if we think about, you know, the interest rate environment that we're in, you know, as our position at BNY Mellon Investor Solutions, we are overweight risk as we see, you know, the yield curve steepening. And so real assets do have the potential to do well in in a rising inflation environment. Um, I would caution, though, allocating to, I guess, maybe even like an MBS side, because we have to take in consideration, though, that we've had a lot of sort of help from um, fiscal policy and even from some of the forbearances on uh, mortgages that those numbers might not be completely accurate. So as, as, as much as real estate you know, does look attractive in, in real assets in general, um, I would caution, uh, I guess, moving completely there. And it's really just all about sizing your bets accurate, accurately. And so... Some of the pullback that we are seeing well, in growth, you know, I, I would I guess necessarily what I would consider doing is just reallocating and um, positioning uh, better. So sometimes it's not just okay. necessarily real assets, but even looking at value as well. A- a- AJ, a quick a quick follow up to your own comment before I go back to Michael. Where do we reallocate to what looks good to you and your team at BNY Mellon? I'd say um, we like non-dollar right now. I mean, I know the you know the dollar's been moving around at ninety and, and sometimes even ninety-two. But I think uh, with a lot of the fiscal stimulus and even the the trade deficit, there's an opportunity for you know the dollar to go lower. And and when you look at non-dollar equities, um, better PE ratios, um, better earnings yield, and mm-hmm. also EM looks a little bit more attractive as an opportunity. Um, I mean, the pullback I'm really seeing in the markets right now, I think it has to do with people not um, getting the adequate um, return on their investment based on the risk um, due to those high P.E. ratios. So I think you get a little bit better um, return um, with non-dollar exposure. Yeah. Michael, quickly, buying commodities, very quick. Yep. We think we're at the beginning of a longer term commodity cycle based on supply, demand, the reflation trade. We would agree with AJ on the weaker dollar and global growth. And so Mm -hmm. if you're looking for long term gains, uh, that's where you want to be. And it's oil, energy, industrial metals, all kinds of commodities. We think that's a great space long term. There we go. Maybe the super cycle. AJ Oden, Michael Cagino, gentlemen, both. Thank you very much. Demographics, folks, remember those. If you're looking for more stock picks, by the way, CNBC Pro has a list of 12 that both retail traders and hedge funders both agree on. They're coming together in a trade. You can get those names at cnbc.com slash pro. All right, coming up here on The Exchange, recycling not just for boxes and bottles. One former Tesla exec working to disrupt a key part 
of the electric vehicle industry. Phil LeBeau is live on the ground in Carson City, Nevada with more. Brian, we are awash in old lithium-ion batteries, whether it's for a cordless drill or an electric lawnmower. What happens when those batteries are no longer used? Well, a lot of them end up here at Redwood Materials in Carson City, Nevada. We're live with the story behind EV battery recycling and why it's so important when the exchange returns. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get right now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Hello, my friend. How are you? Uh, Here's what's happening at this hour. French researchers have developed a coronavirus test they say delivers results three times faster than antigen tests and can be read on a smartphone. In an early test of 300 samples, it proved 90% as accurate as a PCR test for both positive and negative results. The chief of the Cherokee Nation wants Jeep to stop using the tribe's name on its vehicles. In a recent interview with Car and Driver, Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin, Jr., said he thinks it's time for corporations and sports teams to retire the use of Native American names, images, mascots. Jeep has used the Cherokee name for more than 45 years. A U.S. judge has ordered Emma Coronel, wife of drug kingpin El Chapo, to remain in jail temporarily after being arrested for drug trafficking charges and for plotting his escape from a Mexican prison in 2015. The 31-year-old former beauty queen is expected to appear in federal court in Washington later today. And for more on the legal battle uh, Cornell is facing, be sure to watch the news with Shepard Smith tonight. And that, Brian, is the CNBC News update. This hour, back to you. Thank you, my friend. Tyler Matheson. All right. Electric cars are cool and viewed as environmental. But remember, EVs use a lot of big, heavy batteries with a lot of stuff in them. And when they die, they need somewhere to go, which is where one startup comes in. And it's led by none other than Elon Musk's former number two at Tesla. Philbo joining us now with more on that story live on the ground in Nevada. Phil. Brian, here at Redwood Materials, they get about 60 tons a day of old lithium-ion batteries and battery scrap metal from the manufacturing of battery cells. What does that look like? Check this out from above. They're getting 60 tons a day, and that's when they start to recycle the scrap metal and those battery, uh, old battery cells. In fact, they have just signed an agreement with AESC to take some of their battery cells and scrap metal as they're manufacturing uh, battery packs for the Nissan Leaf down in Smyrna, Tennessee. For Redwood Materials, they will then recycle and ship the new raw materials that come out of that recycling process down the road to the Panasonic plant where they're building battery cells that ultimately go into Tesla vehicles. The CEO of Redwood Materials started this company four years ago, J.B. Straubel, former number two at Tesla. He says this is all about making sure there's enough supply for the future generation of EV batteries. It's so important because, you know, electrification and, and the movement toward electric vehicles is, is really entering the steep part of the S-curve. And, you know, this is such an important solution to sustainability in the world, but it's equally important that we make sure we both deal with the end-of-life problems before it's overwhelming. 
Take a look at this chart. This says it all. Cairn Energy Research Advisors believes that by 2030, look at the demand in EV batteries. It is skyrocketing. This is strictly if you take the word of all of the battery makers, automakers, startups who have said, we're planning on building this number of electric vehicles. Do we have enough supply right now, Brian, of things like cobalt, lithium, nickel? Nowhere close to it. Nowhere close to it. That's where Redwood Material and, comes and in. And that's why they can take these old batteries. Go ahead. I love the story, Phil, because, you know, people don't want to people. They want to turn their eyes. Cobalt is a bad. It, literally, you have 11 year old kids in Congo being sent into, into holes for a couple of pennies a day dying to get cobalt. And the tech industry just wants to do this. That's why I'm glad to see this kind of story. But how good is the cobalt? Is it potent enough that it can replace literally the, the child labor yes. that's going on in other parts of the world? Yes, no difference. You can take the nickel, the cobalt, some of the other raw materials that are coming out of these old batteries, repurpose it. It is as effective as if you were taking it straight out of the ground. And the beauty is there are billions, billions of old lithium-ion batteries, everything from our cell phones to cordless drills to electric vehicles, billions of them that are not going to be in use over the next 10, 15 years. They've got to go somewhere. That's where Redwood Materials comes in. All right, really cool story there. I, I, love, I love it. Uncle Phil out there in the mountains. It's a great shot. We just needed some paint. Phil a boat. It's an important story. It's good to see Phil on the ground. There you go. No doubt he walked to Nevada. All right. Another crypto collapse. The GOAT trade is on fire. And SoftBank having a hard time with WeWork. All that and more coming up in today's Rapid Fire. And as we head to break, check out some of the casino stocks again. This get-out-and-travel idea, right? They are booming. Whatever you think about it, Las Vegas Sands, on pace for its best month since August of 2009. MGM, win, all on fire. Dreams of full Vegas hotels by Labor Day, dancing in investors' heads. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. It is time, as that snazzy graphic says, for rapid fire. Some stories and stuff that should be on your radar. Here now to break down the stuff. Deirdre Bosa, Bapasani, and Kate Rooney. Let's kick things off with Bitcoin. The it says cryptocurrency in the prompter. I'm not calling. No, it's not a currency. I'm not going to call it that. The crypto thing is having a bad week, tumbling below fifty thousand dollars after hitting record highs over the weekend. In two days, Bitcoin's value has dropped by about 18%. Sell-offs seemed to accelerate after Treasury Secretary Yellen called it, quote, an extremely inefficient way of conducting transactions, end quote. At the New York Times Dealbook Conference today, Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell sharing his views on the need for a crypto dollar surging during his Senate Banking Committee hearing. We are the world's reserve currency, uh, and we have a responsibility to get this right. We don't need to be the first. We, we need to get it right. It does hold out uh, the prospect of, of the things that you mentioned, very positive. It could, it could help with financial inclusion as well. At the same time, you want to avoid creating um, things that might be destabilizing or that might draw funds away from the banking system. We, we have a banking system. All right, Kate Rooney, your take on this and cryptos, whatever they are, big move. 
<laughs> crypto things. It's interesting to hear Janet Yellen's commentary. It feels like things we've seen before. We know that Bitcoin is not an efficient means of payment. Nobody's buying coffee with it. It's not being used in that sense. So that was a little bit surprising that it really dragged on Bitcoin as much as it had. We also had Elon Musk tweeting that it was too high and the price was too high and it seems like it might have been a bit overbought. So we're seeing a lot of weakness there. There's also Fundstrat's got this fear and greed index. They say that now that the, on the greed side, it was up to something like a 95, which they hadn't seen in a while. So obviously very volatile. It's proving itself in that sense. But the idea from J, uh, from that we just heard, <laughs> was it Powell, Clayton? Um, but that we just heard about the idea of a digital dollar that already exists in the private sector and it has not really taken off. You don't have people like Jack Dorsey and Michael Saylor from MicroStrategies, you know, buying Bitcoin because they can't get access to a digital dollar. They want something that is not affiliated with the government, that isn't tied mm -hmm. to a central bank or monetary policy. I don't think it's much of a competition there. I think those things can exist side by side. It's like the off the show that the whatever it was yeah. the office. There's the Bobs, <laughs> right? Bob Bob Pisani. These are the Jays, the Claytons, and the Pals. To Kate's point, yeah. I mean, but <laughs> right. when they come in, they move this market. Yeah, I you know I really like that tight shot of Jay Powell. I mean, it was really visceral. It's kind of like being in an Alfred Hitchcock movie. We should do that a lot more often. But Janet <laughs> Yellen's right. I mean, how can you use it as a, as a, a method of payment, as as some kind of store of value or a medium of exchange when it moves 25 percent in two days just because Elon Musk says it seems a little high. Can I suggest it's not Bitcoin that seems a little high. It's people that seem a little high who are going to think that this is some kind of medium of exchange. OK, so as for the tethered dollar, that's going to happen. We're going to iron out the kinks. Yeah, and things are going to get better. Three years from now, we're going to have a U.S. dollar that we'll be able to use, I predict, uh, in the medium and not the one that's existing right now. Different kind of one. Quickly, talking, on this, I bring mean, up that Elon Musk tweet. Again, Deirdre, Deirdre, what's he saying? LOL. Did anybody notice, speaking of high, <laughs> that that tweet came at 2.02 in the morning? I mean, he said that Bitcoin and <laughs> yeah. Ether do seem high, LOL, 2.02 a.m. You have to wonder what definition of high he's using, right? To Elon Musk, high can be... You know, have a few different meanings, as Bob kind of alluded to. But why are we even talking about its efficiency? I mean, there's so many other ways to take this. The technology behind it is more important at this point, as more so than whether you can use it to buy a coffee. I mean, the fact that it's taking up so much air among people like Janet Yellen and Jay Powell is indication that this is something that is going that is here to say that is going to take up a lot of conversation in the years and yeah. decades ahead, I think. And Powell's comments today about a central bank issue, digital currency. I mean, that to me seems like an endorsement, perhaps not of Bitcoin specifically, but of blockchain and the technology that will fuel sort of the future of finance and exchange. And Bob just set off a meme. If Bitcoin was a Hitchcock movie, which one would it be? Psycho, Frenzy, a man who knew too much, rear window? I don't know. Let's move on. Next up, Home Depot no, delivering a strong the airplanes coming down earnings, on beating. That's it. Beating North on both the Northwest. top and bottom lines. Net sales grow by a whopping 25%. But investors, they are selling on the news. The problem? Home Depot, Bob Pisani, not providing any guidance. The travel stocks, meantime, they are booming. The market... Does it seem like to you it's it's moving on a bit from the uh, pandemic and lockdown trade? 
Yeah. So where do you go after the reopening? Are people going to still be doing all of this stuff? I, I think the biggest problem is the is the comps. I mean, remember, the market moves on fundamentals. Your second quarter of 2020 comps up 23 percent, third quarter up 24 percent. That's really hard to go against that. The street's going to notice that here. Although I would say Home Depot is like 21 times forward earnings. I, I don't think it's moved in ages. It had, that's been the same price since August, same multiple. It's usually around 20 times forward. I don't think it's overpriced. I just think, you know, how much more upside really is there? It's had a great run. Look at that. It's sideways since August. Well, All right, Brian, let's move on now from, uh, from Home Depot. Oh, I want to go. Hold on. I want to go on to a bigger topic, one that, Deirdre, you know way too well. Okay. We haven't talked about WeWork in what? I don't know, a couple of minutes here. Uh, so let's talk about WeWork. It is back in the headlines. SoftBank and WeWork co-founder Adam Newman nearing a settlement agreement that would entitle the former CEO to a payout of $480 million for a quarter of his shares of the company. That according to the intrepid reporter Deirdre Bosa. Now, this is a smaller deal than the $3 billion agreement SoftBank and WeWork originally had, but... Half a billion for Newman is not half bad. Dear Drabosa, I want you to cite Dear Drabosa's reporting. I can drive a company into the ground for a lot less than $480 million. How about you? <laughs> I mean, what, what a journey it's been. I mean, not only does this resolve this sort of longstanding legal dispute between Adam Newman and SoftBank, but it actually paves the way for WeWork to finally become a public company. At the $47 billion valuation, once fetched, no, far from it. But it's also not the less than $3 billion valuation that it was recently marked down to. Uh, folks are saying that it could be somewhere around $10 billion. And you know what? That's probably a victory for SoftBank and Masasan because it somewhat clears up one of Masasan's, you know, biggest black eyes over the last few years since the Vision Fund has created. And by the way, uh, Brian, the SoftBank has really been firing on many cylinders, reaching, you know, an all-time high in terms of its share price. Vision Fund has really turned it around. A lot of those bets are turning out. There's still this question of WeWork, you know, one of its most embarrassing bets. Um, and if this can be resolved, if WeWork can finally be a public company, that's another sort of, another win for Masasan and a string of them. Yeah, and by the way, Kate Rooney, I don't know if I don't know the producers of it. The the podcast, I think it's called We Crashed or something. I listened to that while driving through Louisiana. If you want to know the story and all the weirdness and the cult almost that went on, I recommend that podcast. That said, what's your take on this story? It's so interesting. Like Deirdre mentioned about the company finally going public. It's not that it was a bad idea. It just felt like that company got bloated. They got into other areas and we live and things that had nothing to do with workspace. But you think about the reopening trade, if the future of work is different, people are looking for smaller office spaces, this could actually work. So, you know, now that they've sort of whittled down the company, they've gotten more focused, it could work. So I'm, I'm very interested to see the next chapter for WeWork. Okay, and Masayoshi's son, the soft bank, to Deirdre's point, has done pretty well. All right, topic number four. After the dramatic GameStop saga, Magnify Money, a lending tree company set up to learn more about Gen Z and millennial investors. And this is what they found out. More than half of these investors are members of investment communities or forums like a Reddit. They are turning now to, of course, social media for investing information. Some of the most popular platforms aren't, though, what you'd expect. They're YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. In fact, only 13% of those surveyed 
are investing on Reddit or the subreddits like a Wall Street bets or otherwise. Uh, Bob Pisani, it sounds like the, the new world is a little bit like the old world in a sense that a few big plays are where people are turning. And by the way, probably throw CNBC I on love, that list. I, I agree with that. And I, I love the fact that with all of this obsession with Reddit, what's really where people go? They go to YouTube and TikTok, not Reddit. So that's interesting, number one. Number two, did you see the bottom of the survey? 22% of young investors trade stocks at least once a week. Uh, Good luck on that. Uh, I wish everybody well, and I hope they stay as long-term investors. We know people who trade consistently as day traders over long periods lose money. The academic literature is very clear on that. So let's hope that that number, that ratio of, of people who constantly keep trading all the time, goes down because it looks like you're a genius in an up market. You know that, Brian. And what happens when you're not? So let's try to keep those people. I love yeah, them, but, you know, but listen, careful with that. Well, Kate Rooney, we're, we're bringing them into the market. For, listen, every generation, every 10 years, things flip. In the 70s, it was cut off ACDC shirts and Marlboro Reds. A decade later, it's pink IZODs, you know, popped collar driving a sob, right? The preppy handbook. Things flip over. It's good to have people get interested in the market, even if they take some hits, to Bob's point, right? Stay in long-term, 60 years, congrats. Something like TikTok feels like it's just as much entertainment as it is financial literacy. And if you can combine those things, that's a great thing. And a lot of the startup brokerage firms have really leaned into that. You've had SoFi add sort of a social aspect of this sort of like a Venmo type thing where you can see what your friends are trading. There's other startups. Public.com, which we talked about, put out an ad today with Michael Bolton saying, talking about market structure, which we were laughing about before this, that that is sort of, I mean, the fact that Michael Bolton and market structure are being mentioned and he's serenading clients to try to get them from other brokerage firms. That is fascinating. And uh, Deirdre and I were on Slack laughing about that. But (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the new normal. Well, you know, I love, I have to, I love how I have you ended that. Yeah, we though, were on they're Slack. They're trying to be relevant. <laughs> I just have to say, they're trying to be relevant with a younger investing crowd, but they're using Michael Bolton. Was that the right person to use? I, I don't know. He's kind of when a I need information, by the way, we got to go. We got it. We got to go. We got to go. <laughs> oh, nobody won or lost. Just like millennial, everybody's, we all did the same in that one. Uh, but I will say this, Bob, some of these people have got to watch out. There are securities rules. <laughs> Analysts come on our show. They have like 16 pages of disclosures. I'm just saying to people, I love it. It's awesome. Just be careful. Deirdre, Bob, Kate, awesome rapid fire. No doubt the best Thank of the you. week. All right. Still ahead, COVID vaccine supply getting a little tighter across the country with the weather. The winter storm certainly not helping matters. We're going to have the latest details straight ahead, straight from the manufacturers themselves. And of course, remember, it is Black History Month, and we are honoring some of our CNBC contributors and friends. Here's Courtney Gibson with her advice for the next generation. One piece of advice that I would give to the next generation of young black people in this country is to be unapologetically black. It is your superpower. It can be your superpower. It's up to you to use it. Ultimately, think big and focus, focus, focus.
All right. Fed Chair Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve to the rescue a bit. You're looking at the board saying, "Okay, Brian, everything's in the red. Yeah, but the Dow was down almost 400 earlier. The Nasdaq at one point was down 3.9 percent. That's a massive move for tech. We're still down, not making light of it. Nasdaq down 1.8 percent. But overall, we've seen the markets come off their lows. There's a lot of concern about rising rates. The bond market, that is. Jay Powell steps in and says, at least from our end, don't worry, low rates for a long time. All right, moving on to the most important story of our generation, and that is ending the pandemic and nationwide vaccination efforts pushing forward despite supply disruptions for the dangerous winter weather across America. Here is where we stand. Latest CDC tally as of yesterday, just over 75 million doses distributed. About 13% of Americans have now received one or more doses. The number, though, to focus on is 17% because that's the percentage of adults over 18 who have gotten at least one shot. Meg Terrell joining us now with some important news and updates from the vaccine manufacturers. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, the vaccine manufacturers are testifying today in front of a a House committee and provided some updates and written testimony about their vaccine supply. And so we got news from both Pfizer and Moderna that over the next month or so, they're both going to be doubling their output to the United States. Moderna saying doubling um, U.S. supply to 40 million doses or more per month by April. Pfizer plans to more than double its output to the U.S. to more than 13 million doses per week by mid-March. Now, we also got our first sign from Johnson & Johnson about how much they'll have. We'd heard, you know, a few million doses upon uh, emergency use authorization, which could happen as soon as this weekend, potentially. But now they're saying they'll have at least 20 million doses by the end of March. And remember, J&J is a one-shot vaccine, so that's enough for 20 million people. Uh, We also got some updates from AstraZeneca and Novavax. AZ expects its U.S. Phase 3 trial results to come in the next few weeks, so we should be on the lookout for that. Now, Novavax saying it expects to complete its submission to the FDA for its vaccine in the second quarter and, if successful, would have 110 million doses uh, by the third quarter. Brian, this all adds up to, by the end of March, enough for 130 million Americans to be vaccinated. And by the end of July, only counting Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J, enough for 400 million Americans. That's more than the number of Americans that actually exist. So we're going to have a supply glut at some point, even if it really does not feel that way right now. Brian. No, once, listen, as we've talked about, and I've been a little more bullish on it, I know, but once we get into the normal supply chain, CBS, Walgreen, and if we get those others approved, we could start to boogie a little bit. There's a reason for hope in the spring. Meg Terrell, Meg, thank you. All right. A little bit of hope in Texas. The lights mostly back on. A lot of people, though, still tell me they don't have water. Either way, what exactly really went wrong? Where did it go wrong? And more importantly, how do we prevent this from happening again? I'm heading out to Texas, by the way, tomorrow through the end of the week to do some on-the-ground reporting, but we'll talk about it here next. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will travel to Houston, Texas on Friday following the deadly winter storm, which caused the state's worst blackout in decades. For more now on exactly what happened and how to prevent it, we're joined now by Dan Cohen. He is an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering at Rice University and an energy grid expert. Uh, Professor Cohen, Daniel, thank you for very much for coming on. I'm actually headed out to Houston tomorrow to do some on-the-ground reporting. But from your perch and what I've seen and read It looks like it was sort of not only just a, quote, perfect storm, but a colossal breakdown on almost every single level at the same time. 
It was. It was a colossal breakdown. It was failures in ways that that we can't have our systems fail. And it was a perfect storm. It was about as strong as storms that we get every 20 or 30 years on average. So it was a very strong storm, but not unprecedented and not uh, anything beyond the sort of storms that we should be preparing for in the future. Yeah, it happened in 2011. People screamed, we need change. It happened in 1989. People screamed, we need change. Reports were made. Strongly worded letters were issued. Daniel, I'm sure nothing got done. Okay, it's a deregulated market. It's why people love it. And every 10 years, they hate it. What's the solution here? Is it to, is it to better regulate this market? There is no one solution. I mean, this was a catastrophic failure on so many levels. This was a an energy systems failure. This was a market failure, a regulatory failure. As an engineering professor, I look at this as a energy systems failure. I, I focus on that side of things. And, and to me, it's important that we realize that, that this can't be addressed within the electricity system alone, that this was really a matter of the mutual vulnerabilities of our gas system and our electricity system to each other. And, you know, again, every, unfortunately, Daniel, like everything, everything becomes politicized, my side, your side, wind versus fossil. OK, natural gas was the biggest failure because it's the it's the biggest out there. Pipes literally froze. But wind turbines condensed with fog. They shut down coal plants. The water froze for the lakes to free. Even a nuclear plant shut down. Is there a way to winterize this? And if so, at what would be the ultimate cost, do you think? Absolutely. Every single piece of our electricity supply gave us less output at the same time all at once, right at the same time that demand would have been at a record high for our winters if it hadn't been forced down by these blackouts. So, so every piece could have been um, carrying a bigger part of the load. We could be doing more with efficiency to reduce um, that demand. Uh, but uh, by far the biggest piece, the piece that, that overwhelmed every other piece of the story is, is the way that the gas systems and the gas electricity wasn't there when we needed it. Yeah. And, and as far as, and Daniel, it, when I look at what you've talked about and, and some of the comments that you've made and what I've read, and I know there's a huge push for renewables, and that's great. By the way, Texas leads the country in wind. It's the biggest wind, per, it's a, as my late friend Boone Pickens said, the Saudi Arabia of wind uh, in many ways. But do you think this is going to increase natural gas production long term? Because to your point, commercial and residential use are very different here. Yeah, if we use this as a reason to to stop uh, building wind and stop adding solar and solar is, is growing so fast on the grid, we'll be really shooting ourselves in the foot because those are what I call fuel saving renewables. Those are fuels that aren't meant to get us through the very coldest hour of the winter, but they save fuel, they save cost, they save emissions all year round so that uh, the gas can be there at the times we need it most. That was uh, expected to be our firm resource. So I think there are great questions to be asked. Should wind yep. farms be better winterized? Is that the right investment to make? Absolutely, that a nuclear unit went down, that it wasn't prepared for freezing water. Absolutely a problem there, that, that the coal plants weren't able to produce yep. when we needed the most. Uh, it's, it's across each aspect of the system, but I well, think it's possible to learn the wrong lessons from this. Well, hopefully some lessons will be learned. I'm going to try to figure it out as well with your help and others. Daniel Cohen of Rice University. Daniel, pleasure. Thank you very much. I'll actually be on the ground in Houston on Thursday and Friday as well, telling the story and some of the human stories. And by the way, if you've got a human story from Houston, hit me up on Twitter. I'd love to hear it. Power Lunch starts now. You've been listening to The Exchange. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.